Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Clara, five day, you're going to head out, and Jordan's going to lead them. Please keep your Bibles open at Titus chapter 1. There's an outline of my talk on the back of your handout. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and all its truth, and we thank you for this letter from Paul to Titus, <coughs> teaching us not only the gospel, but how it, how it applies in our lives and the transformation that your word can make in the lives of people, even people who are hardened to the gospel. So we pray uh, that through your word over these next few weeks as we read Titus, you continue to grow us and change us to be more Christ-like. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the geographical context for the letter of Titus is Crete, just off the coast of Greece. The Apostle Paul has sent Titus to Crete for the purpose of preaching the gospel and uh, growing the churches that are there and appointing leaders, elders, in each of the churches to do the same thing. But the people that are there, in verse 12, are described as always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. So it seems Titus is up against it, doesn't it? I wonder how Titus felt. I wonder how you would feel 
if you were sent to this little island full of liars and brutes and gluttons to preach the gospel? Would you feel like this is a waste of time? Why send me here? You know, there's, there's no way these people are going to respond uh, to the gospel. No chance. I remember somewhat feeling that myself when I started high school SRE. And I was standing up the front of the class on the first day. And as I was being introduced to the class, a student walked in and said, this is F and BS. And he stood behind the door. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> here we are. I really felt like I was up against it and my mild nervousness turned into terror uh, at that moment uh, at the thought of teaching the Bible. I was straight out of college and I just wasn't sure I was going to be able to make any impact uh, in this place with the gospel. And I wonder if that's how Titus felt when he first walked into Crete. Did he feel like Paul had cruelly sent him into the lion's den or something like that as he entered Crete? Were they beyond help? I wonder, have you ever felt like that maybe with a friend of yours that you've, you've tried for so long but there's just no way they're going to respond to the gospel? Maybe you know someone who you just think, oh man, there's just no chance uh, for that person. They're so far gone, they could never put their trust in Jesus. I wonder if that, you feel like that about anyone you know. Well, we're going to spend a bit of time on these first three verses. Um, and then we're going to move through the last little bit uh, more quickly because these first three verses, often we can skip over the introductions as this is the, this is the you know, um, dear Frank, hope you're going okay, this is what I want to tell you, bit. But there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of gold in these first three verses and there's also a lot of foundation for the rest of the letter in these first three verses. So look again with me at verse 1. Paul, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So we really get what's happening in this whole letter in this first verse. Paul describes himself as a servant of God and an apostle. What's that mean? Well, an apostle is one who's chosen by God, commissioned by him to know God's word and then to, to know Jesus and then to preach God's word throughout the world as far as they can extend it. So the apostles knew Jesus personally and were commissioned personally by God to preach the gospel, but also many of them to, to start churches. So many of the apostles were pioneer church planters, uh, like Paul, who started the church in Corinth, like uh, Titus, who started the church in Crete, like us, who started the church in Gregory Hills. There you go, us. Um, they know Jesus personally, they, uh, they witness to him, and they're church planners. So Paul's, we're given, Paul's God-given role in life is to further the faith of God's elect. That's what it says, to further the faith of God's elect. So what he's trying to do is preach the gospel to as many people as he can, knowing that those who are elect, they've been chosen by God, they've been predestined before the beginning of time, they're going to respond to the gospel and be saved. And then what he's trying to do is grow those who have, who've been saved in the faith and grow them in their understanding of who Jesus is. Faith is what brings people from spiritual death to spiritual life. And this we learn in Ephesians 2 which is the first dot point on the screen, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The Bible tells us we were lifeless without the desire to change, 
nor the ability to change without God's Holy Spirit in us. Dead people can't do anything, can they? They need an act of God in order to bring them alive. Some years ago, I was called to Campbelltown Hospital to meet with a lady whose husband had just died. I went into the hospital. I was ushered in through emergency to where she was. Her husband had just died. She was sitting on one side of his corpse, and I sat on the other side of his corpse. And I read a psalm to her, and I prayed for her and her loved ones. I would love to have prayed for him, but it was too late to pray for him because he had died. I would love to have shared the gospel with him so that he might come alive and put his trust in Jesus, but I couldn't. He was dead. And dead people can't do anything. It takes an act of God to bring people who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. Dead people can't even put their trust in Jesus. They need an act of God in them to bring them alive. So then, the next dot point, verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2. Because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. We've all been saved. God breathes his spirit into our lives to make us alive, to give us faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability and the desire to respond to the gospel with faith. God transforms us from death to life. This is really, really, really important for you in your evangelism. Really important to understand how it works. It's an act of God in people's lives. You can be as persuasive as all. Get out and you know, be the most amazing evangelist in the world, even better than Dan Toomer. If you don't know him, he was a student minister here and he's an amazing evangelist. You can be even better than him and it doesn't matter if God hasn't chosen that person and transformed their heart by his Holy Spirit. So we need to pray, don't we, right, in evangelism. We need to pray for people and then go out there and do the work of evangelism just like Paul, knowing that those whom God has chosen will respond because... They've been chosen. That's Paul's goal. To see people converted and to see people grow in Christ-likeness. Our primary goal for ourselves, friends, ought to be Christ-likeness. God's word, the truth, is what transforms us. It changes us to be more like Jesus, to be more godly. I desire to be a great husband, I desire to be a great dad, I desire to be a great minister, but more than that, my desire for myself and yourselves ought to be Christ-likeness. And can I say, the more Christ-like I am, the better husband, father and minister I will be. The more Christ-like you are in your life, the better you will be at living in a given vocation and roles that God has blessed you with, whatever it may be. And this Christ-likeness comes not from trying harder. <laughs> it comes from God's word. And that much is very, very clear, especially in the NIV translation, which is what most of us have, but maybe not all of you. We're going to have a look at the ESV translation in just a moment. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, the Bible, that leads to godliness. Knowledge of the, the Bible leads to godliness. Now, there's interesting, in the ESV, it says, 
Paul, servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Which accords with godliness. And I think that's a little bit different. And I think that what that's saying is truth and God's word and godliness go hand in hand. Where there's one, there'll be the other. Where there's God's word, there'll be godliness. Where there's godliness in a person's life, there must be God's word. Does that make sense? Godliness and God's word go hand in hand. If we read our Bibles, we will live a godly life. We will grow in godliness. Now, in this letter to Titus, I think the the focus, if you like, is more on that NIV translation because he's preaching the gospel in Crete where there's Judaizers, there's Pharisees who are trying to trust the law for salvation and then there's, there's evil brutes and gluttons and liars. So Paul's, Titus's goal is to see God's word, the truth, transform people, transform these people who aren't living godly lives into saved ones who are. So I've just alluded to it. There's, there's, just to be clear, there's two different very serious types of ungodliness happening in Crete. This is the context for Titus's ministry. Um, sorry. There's two different kinds of ungodliness happening. And what's going what's to transform these people is the gospel, is knowing God's word. And that's what transforms us as well, is the gospel is knowing God's word. Is the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, reminding us of God's word and transforming us. And as we transform, we change, but also we impact in a positive way the people around us. We impact our families, our workplaces, our communities, universities, schools. We impact people around us with our godliness as we grow in godliness, as we read God's word. Um. The last thing to note in these first few verses is this context for our godliness. Our godliness has eternal consequences. Did you see that? Paul, servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And which now at his appointed season he's brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me, Paul, by the command of God our Saviour. God's plans for our lives as his people were made before the beginning of time. He chose us before the beginning of time. He gave us work to do before the beginning of time. He, in eternity, planned our ministry going forward. In love, he predestined his precious children to be saved, to be adopted, to become co-heirs with Christ, and then to do work in his name. And this work which he planned before the beginning of time has eternal consequences. So as we, as we live godly lives and do the ministry which God has given us to do, it has eternal consequences in other people's lives. Eternal consequences. As you practice godliness in your home and your neighbourhood and your workplace it can have eternal consequences on people's lives. 
as they encounter the words of Jesus in you and from you. That's big. You can have eternal consequences on people's lives. People will be eternal beneficiaries of your godliness in their lives. And more than that, the Father delights when you live a godly life in the little things, not just the big things. Josh alluded me to this really helpful uh, podcast about a month ago that talks about the hardship of motherhood, how hard it can be to be a mum, particularly with young kids, and how significant an eternal godliness is capable and possible even in the little things of changing diapers and doing school runs and all that kind of thing. We can have a significant impact for the gospel in the small things. And one of us will share that uh, on Facebook through the week so you can all see it. Courage in the ordinary is the name of the talk. As Christians, we don't do good because we have to. We do good because we want to. And that's what we've been saved to do. And God in his eternity has given us good work to do in his name And that work has eternal consequences. It's a wonderful joy and blessing to be a follower of Jesus. And it it matters a lot. Our godliness matters massively. It might not seem like you're having a massive impact or contribution, but you are as you live a godly life. Our church, as humble as it is in this school in southwest Sydney, was divinely planned before the beginning of time to exist so that we together can live godly lives in this community and have an eternal impact for the gospel on this community. And my hope and prayer is we can certainly have an impact on this school for the, for the gospel for all eternity and in the other social circles that we mix in. There is nothing happening in the world more significant than what's happening here every Sunday morning and as we go out into the world. What's happening in Canberra as Parliament, when they meet, is not as important. The UN gathering to talk about world events is not as significant. Those things are significant, but they do not have eternal consequences. Our godliness in the world has eternal consequences. Look at verse 3 again, if you don't believe me, and B astonished as we look at verse 3 how would you finish the sentence paul writes the hope of eternal life which god who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now his appointed season he's brought to light through what surely you'd say through jesus through the resurrection through the work of the holy spirit and those things are true absolutely The hope of eternal life has certainly been brought to life through Christ and his ministry, but that's not what it says. It says, hope of eternal life, promised before the beginning of time, brought to light through preaching, entrusted to Paul by the command of God our Saviour. The hope of eternal life is made manifest in the world when we share the gospel with one another and with others in our lives who don't know about Jesus. God's great hope and plan for the world 
reaches people when we tell them the truths of the Bible. That's astonishing. (laughs) Extraordinary. People encounter Jesus when they encounter us. When we in godliness live a godly life and when we in godliness share the goodness of God's word with them. Think about it. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word is Jesus. It's in God's word we encounter Jesus. As we share God's word with people, they encounter Jesus. And more than that, when we invite people to read the Bible with us, they encounter Jesus which will have eternal consequences on their lives, as it did all of our lives. I've asked six blokes to read the Bible with me in the last three years, and four said yes. Four out of six. I need to ask more. That's a pretty good strike rate. But what if we all start asking people to read the Bible with us? I've had a lot of joy with the word one-to-one. I invite people to read the word one-to-one with me, and they, they really enjoyed it. It's It's not threatening it's not a whole bible which can be a bit overwhelming it's it's john's gospel broken up into bite-sized chunks with some explanation questions and answers as you go and it's really great i'm pretty sure i've got it in my bag i'm pretty sure here it is because i'm reading it with someone right now friday afternoon tuesday afternoons the word one-to-one it's really good small it's not scary it's got little questions and answers. It's got the Bible bit written down and it's got a whole bunch of questions. So for the person who's not a Christian yet, the questions they ought to be asking are all there for them, so the pressure's off them. And for the person who's a Christian, the answers are all there too, so the pressure's off you as well. As you read God's Word together, it's all laid out and it takes you through really helpfully and explains the passage And then you read the whole passage and you kind of go, ah, okay, now I understand it. And then you move on to the next one. And there's a whole bunch of different volumes. So the trick is you say to somebody, you know, like, let's get together. We'll we'll read the Bible once together and see what you think. And if you enjoy it, we can read more. And they've just got this one little book. And if they don't like it, well, that's okay. And if they do, there's more volumes in the series that you buy for them, of course. Um, Every person that I've sat down with who said yes has said, let's read more and um, continue to read on. God's word leads to godliness, leads to people's salvation. Okay, so that's the first three verses. That was long. This will be shorter. What does godliness look like? So now we move on to the kind of specifics of elders and leaders in the church. Titus knows the gospel. He's got the gospel with him. He's got the gospel in him. He's been commissioned to tell the gospel into the world that is Crete, to live the gospel, to share the gospel, and also to raise up more leaders to lead churches in and around Crete. Verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So, Titus has to find elders to run the churches. More college isn't quite up and running yet at this stage, 2,000 years ago. So Titus has to find good godly men and put them in place in the churches around Crete. And there's this checklist of what they need to be like. Blameless. Doesn't mean perfect. 
No one's perfect except for Jesus alone. But they live a godly life by and large. They're not open to accusation. Today we call that above reproach. Um, public and private, they lead a godly life to the best of their ability and, and they're known for that. They're known for being a godly guy. Um, again, not a perfect husband, but faithful to his wife. A one-woman man was the translation that Lara read, which was really helpful. A one-woman man loves his wife, he keeps his hands and he keeps his eyes off other women. He's got believing children. Now, it's up to God whether or not someone is saved, as we've just established in verses 1 to 3. It's not up to the dad. Um, I wish it was. Um, but it's up to God whether or not his kids are saved or not. But when they're young, the elder reads the Bible to his kids, he prays with his kids, he takes his kids along to church. So for the most part, they are believers. They, they love Jesus they learn about Jesus at that stage. They're believers. Once they get to adulthood, they become their own responsibility, no longer their elders' responsibility. That makes sense? Um, of course, they're not going to be perfect. They're permitted rebellions here and there, as all kids are. But, for, but by and large, they're well-behaved, well-behaved kids. Now, since elders or overseers interchangeable, manage the church, they should be able to manage their own families. Just before you look at the table, um, I was talking to John about this through the week. Since they manage the church, since they're being called to manage the church, they ought to be able to manage their own families. And if they can't manage their own families, I don't think we kind of shake the finger at them and say, oh, you can't even do that, how are you going to do that? I think if they can't manage their own families, they need, they need, they don't need the burden of managing the church. They just need to to focus on their families. But if they can manage their families well, well, then they're eligible to also, in addition to managing their families, manage the church. Does that make sense? So here's a further catalogue of qualities. Now, back in the good old days, you were allowed to tell people what not to do as well as what to do. You didn't have to frame everything in the positive all the time. And I reckon we'll get back there once we realise it's actually really helpful. Um, so this is what you don't do, and this is what you do if you're an elder. I could spend 10 minutes on each item, but in love for the crèche leaders, I won't. Um, so I'm going to slow down towards the bottom of the list a little bit. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. These guys aren't in it for themselves for the money or the prestige or, worst of all, to impress the women in the church. They're in it for Jesus and to glorify him. So don't do those things. Rather, be hospitable, love what is good, be self-controlled, be upright, holy and disciplined. I feel like these three kind of go together. Um, they're godly and they're consistently godly. They're consistent, they're they're disciplined in their godliness, in the way they think and speak and act, they're godly. Not perfect, but a great example to others. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught by the apostles so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So he needs to know his Bible if he's going to teach others. He needs to know his Bible if he's going to correct others when they're wrong in their way they're living or in what they're teaching, which is a, a massive part of what Paul's given Titus to do, to go to Crete and 
strongly rebuke those who are teaching falsely, most, most of all the Pharisees, the, the Judaizers. So this has come up twice now, come up a few weeks ago when Sam preached that encouragement and rebuke are necessary and called for from God's word. And I think this applies to all ministry leaders, not just elders. All ministry leaders need to know their Bibles well so they can teach people how to live godly lives in truth. They can know when people are getting it wrong and refute them and redirect them in love. And I think if you've gotten off track and you've got a minister who's corrected you or rebuked you in love graciously, then he's doing his job. If you get off track and he knows about it and he's not correcting you, well, he's not doing his job. As ministry leaders, we need to be correcting those in whom we're leading, our growth groups, youth group, kids' church, all those kinds of things. Now, I think we find criticism hard. And I think we need to get better at it. And I think we live in a world that discourages it. (laughs) Um, You do you and I'll do me and... As long as no one's hurting one another, that's fine. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we need to refute those who are wrong from God's word. I think we need to get better at taking criticism from others. And I reckon we're even worse at giving criticism to others because, you know, we don't want to hurt people's feelings, which is good. I don't give criticism particularly well. I'm getting better at taking it, I think. Ask Lara um, later. Um, I need to do better at giving and getting criticism, and maybe you do too, because we're called to live God's way and we're called to correct one another when we're not, particularly those in leadership. Um, So here's a catalogue for a godly leader. Is this what your leaders are like? They ought to be. And if they are, encourage them. Praise them. Thank them. Pray for them to keep it up. They'll keep being like this. If you're a leader in some way in our church, is this what you were like? If there's any ways in which you feel like you're struggling, ask for help. Help's available. No one's perfect. We're all on a learning curve. Ask for help. Ask for prayer to help you do better. Speak to your leader and ask them to help you. I've got a question for you, which John alluded to right at the start. Which qualities on this list don't apply to every Christian? If you're not a leader, which one of those qualities on the list can you go, oh, I don't need to be that as a Christian? I can be quick-tempered. No. Drunkenness is okay if I'm not a leader. No, no. No need to be self-controlled? No. (laughs) It's applied to all Christians, doesn't it? But as leaders, we need to be exemplars and models of these qualities. Okay, last point. Elders, church leaders need to know the truth, model the truth, so they're not blown back and forth in the crucible of church and community. 
This was definitely true for Titus, who was in Crete. As we come to our last section, verse 10, <clears throat> For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced. because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they'll be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who rejected the truth, to the pure all things of pure, but to those who are corrupted do not believe nothing's pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. <clears throat> and this applies to all the Judaizers in the circumcision group and the Cretans. <coughs> they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. So the circumcision group, the Pharisees, the ones who teach that you're saved by works, by obeying the law, are there in Crete and they're leading the Cretans <coughs> astray with false teaching teaching them to depend on themselves and depend on their law abidance and depend on their good works. And Titus is to rebuke them sharply so they'll stop teaching falsely in the church and leading these people astray. For the sake of their faith in the gospel and their faith in the gospel, Titus is to go in hard and rebuke them sharply. So one end of the spectrum, you've got these people who depend on the law to be saved. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are lawless, lies, brutes, evil, lazy gluttons. Um, and they, they, these guys need to be stopped because these guys will never be saved while they're listening to this kind of teaching. Okay? Um, so these guys trusting the law, these guys doing whatever they want without a care in the world... Another word for this is licentiousness. Licentiousness, doing whatever we want, whatever feels good and makes us happy. And licentiousness is having a field day in our culture today, unfortunately and sadly. We look for what's going to make us happy, what's going to make us comfortable above and beyond anything else. But more than that, we've gone way beyond just what's going to make me happy and comfortable to thinking there is no absolute truth i am a law unto myself a woman's right to choose has taken away basic human rights from the other human being that's inside her womb leading to a massive increase in abortions the last few decades and interestingly and wonderfully this has been overturned Uh, in the u.s the laws have been changed dramatically inhibiting Abortion, except in extreme examples when it's good and right, such as the life of the mothers in danger. Dignity at the end is what we kind of cloak euthanasia in, stealing away the rights of people who are elderly or very ill, perhaps terminally ill, perhaps not. There's been stories of people who've been diagnosed terminally ill, recommended euthanasia, but then recovered and led a long life. Uh, in Europe. So the right to life or the right to end my life is taking away people's rights. It's, it's, a, it's stealing away God's authority. It's his decision to give life. It's his decision to take it away, not ours. 
And the supposed massive increase in gender dysphoria is fueling a generation of young people tricked into believing that gender is their choice, not God's choice. Gender is God's choice, not their choice. Did you know that 50 years ago, about 0.03% of people genuinely struggled with gender dysphoria and they were all male? Today that number has decreased dramatically and primarily female, and it's got to do with influences, particularly on social media. Parents, guard your children's social media closely and make sure you know everything that they're seeing and saying on social media. Protect them. Social media is just so, so very fraught uh, with danger and they're so susceptible and we're all busy and often we don't make times and we use devices to kind of keep them busy. But please keep a very, very close eye on what your kids are seeing. Our kids, race 13, he's starting to get to the point where he's got a bit more freedom with that kind of thing, but we see, we can see every, every conversation he has and everything he looks at and it's not... At this age, it's not prying, it's protecting, and he understands that. Titus has been sent into this melting pot of paganism to preach the gospel and to sharply rebuke those who are living contrary to God's word, particularly those who are teaching contrary to God's word, and this is great and it's right. It's for their sake and those they're teaching sake that Titus needs to rebuke them sharply, which is just so countercultural today. You don't rebuke anyone sharply. You do you, I'll do me. No, rebuke them sharply for their sake because they're wandering away from the faith that leads to godliness and the consequence is eternal death. Friends, no one likes to be criticised. Even more than that, we don't like to criticise But the Bible is calling us to refute one another when we're wrong, in love and Christian unity and fellowship for the sake of one another's faith. A major part of the Christian life is the ability to be able to give and receive rebuke and correction so that we'll be more godly, so that we might live godly lives and have a greater impact on our friends and our families as we manifest God's truth in their lives And we please God at the same time. It's a blessing to be criticised when we're off track from God's word. And it's a blessing to lovingly criticise another when they're off track from God's word to bring people back to the truth that leads to godliness. This is extremely countercultural, isn't it? So we need to practice it and help one another and be ready for it if we're Christians. What's that mean for us today? Well, we have an opportunity to make an internal impact on ourselves as we read God's truth and grow in godliness and then others as we manifest Jesus in their lives by our godliness and by our sharing of the truth to them that leads to godliness. And we have an opportunity to work together as a church, as a team that God has brought together to impact our community, this school and beyond in the Camden Valley with the truth that leads to godliness. If you want to have that (coughs) eternal impact on people, you need to read your Bible. You need a habit of reading your Bible. You need to put it in your diary. Read your Bible. Read Titus every day for the next couple of weeks. It's a great idea, John. 
Over the three years that I taught high school scripture, I saw teenagers respond to the gospel. As they read the Bible for themselves, they grew in godliness. They changed. They put their trust in Jesus. They came along to lunchtime group and I had to say to their friends, oh, look, I'm not going to hang out with you and play touch or talk or whatever. I'm going to go to the Christian group. You're going to, what? I'm going to go to the Christian group. You're weird. I don't care. I'm going to go. And I saw them change and I saw them grow in godliness and I saw them come to youth group and grow in godliness. I saw up close, I had the wonderful blessing and joy of seeing the impact of the truth in people's lives and practicing godliness, knowing God's word, reading it day and as you're able, young mums, I get it. Husbands, read to your wives as they're whatever, like, you know, do what you've got to do to get God's word into you as you're able. I know it's hard, especially when you're sleep deprived and breastfeeding and nappies and the whole, I know. Um, it's hard, but as we do, we grow in our godliness at home, out in the world as well. And then we're ready to stand up for the truth when we're called to, as our dear friend Josh Alloyer did this last week, when Manly were asked to wear jerseys celebrating homosexuality and Josh, a first grade footballer and six other first grade footballers said, no, we're Christians, we're not going to do that. We're not going to play. Now for the for the Polynesian kids in his team, playing in the NRL is just their dream. Like, it's just their ultimate dream since they were little kids on their Polynesian islands, Samoa and Fiji and wherever they've come from. It's just their dream. And to be offered a jersey because Josh and the other guys stood down and said, we're not going to play. And they said, well, do you want to play? And they said no as well. They said no to their dream because they stood up for godliness. If we're willing to commit to learning God's truth, we'll grow in godliness and we'll be ready when godliness is hard. Second thing, if we neglect God's truth, we'll grow in ungodliness. We'll slip away from the godliness. We'll slip into lawlessness or we'll slip into Pharisaism very, very quickly. And I've talked for a long time, so I'm going to stop there. Reading God's word leads to godliness, but neglecting it leads to godlessness. Will you pray with me? Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word, for your letter in Titus. God, we pray that you'll help us to help one another to get God's word into us by sharing God's word with us, particularly those of us who are tired and time poor. Help us to be generous in sharing God's word with one another. God, by your Holy Spirit, grow us in godliness for our own sake, for your glory, for our family's sake, the communities in which we mix, the workplaces, etc. In Jesus' name, amen.